0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's scripture text can be found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, starting in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Our
1: text begins with an argument among the twelve disciples. as to which of them was the greatest. And it doesn't tell us, what that argument looked like, but let me imagine it for you. (laughs) Peter might have thought he had grounds to be the greatest because he was the most outspoken. He could have put it like this. Look, I'm the natural-born leader. I'm among the inner circle of the three disciples. Jesus miraculously filled my nets with fish. He healed my mother-in-law. I walked on water. And after all, I first declared the identity of Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus gave me the name Rock. Beat that, would you? <laughs> to the contrary, John might have replied, Peter, when you were walking on water, you sank. <laughs> and don't you remember? Jesus called you Satan. Satan. When you said, you're never going to die. He never called me Satan. And after all, he didn't call you rock. He called you little rock. Pebble. (laughs) And at the transfiguration, you fell asleep just like the rest of us. You are no better. You are not the greatest. I am. I am the disciple Jesus loved. And... It could go on, but you get the picture. And the picture is revealing, as we saw last week and really the week before, the week before, is that though the disciples believe in Jesus, yet there remains in them a strong unbelief. And this week, it shows itself in sinful pride. And along with pride, self-exaltation, and alienation with God and one another, they need Christ's sanctifying word. Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is true. Jesus is going to speak to sanctify them, to kill their pride, and replace it with a Godward humility And they need Jesus' pardon for sin. They need his power over their sinful pride, and they need his pardon for their pride. And we know Jesus will die for their pardon. Here's my aim. This feels next to impossible, apart from the grace of God. Everybody hates pride in other people, right? And... No one apart from grace realizes how prideful we are. And even as Christians, indwelling sin of pride remains in us just like with the disciples. So my aim is that Jesus would do this inner working heart surgery to expose our prideful nature in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and in humble repentance and faith, grant that we would follow Jesus as he here describes in the way of the cross. Self-denial, humility, into suffering, into serving, all the way to glory. Father in heaven, Your word is crystal clear. You are opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. (laughs) Pride is the center of Adam's sin in trying to be like God. Pride is the reason Satan fell from among the holy angels. Pride is the heart of our rebellion. It's the center of the alienation. It's the reason why Cain killed Abel. So help us. Do your heart work by the teaching of Jesus. Kill our pride and replace it with a humble faith in Jesus and a heart to follow him as the greatest in the kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus here now confronts the disciples' prideful thoughts as they're revealed and exposed in these two accounts. What's revealed is their, is their prideful quest, two points, this is my outline, to be greater than others in position and number two, greater than others in authority. So let's look at it. Jesus confronts the disciples' pride in their quest to be, point number one, greater than others in position. So now, the disciples are debating over which of them is the greatest. And Jesus, it says in the text that Jesus knew the reasoning, see it there in verse 47, the reasoning in their hearts. Jesus knew the reasoning that's going on in their hearts. He knew it, from which the quarrel rose and the text doesn't explicitly say what that reasoning was. But we can infer their reasoning from the response that Jesus gave. First, notice how Jesus changes the issue from who is the greatest to who is great. Feel the difference? He changes the issue from who is the greater which is what they're arguing about, to who is the great. You see it there? He says, um, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He does away with this comparative, who's the greatest? And he calls him to be great. Great. So Jesus does away with their comparative reasoning. The reasoning of pride. I'm greater than you. And replaces it with who is great. Who is great. It's the verb to be. To be great. C.S. Lewis helps. In uh, Mere Christianity, he talks about the comparative nature of pride as competitive like this. I'm going to read a quote. Lewis says, Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. What are they arguing over? Who is the greatest? I'm greater than. It's pride. And Jesus turns this prideful reasoning on its head. It's the second way we can see how Jesus is understanding their reasoning. By means of a child. (laughs) He, He takes the child to his side. The Gospel of Mark says he picked up the child and put him on his lap. He received him into his arms. And then Jesus said in verse 48... To the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. (laughs) Don't confuse this now with, with the other teaching about a child from Jesus, about receiving the kingdom like a child. This isn't about the child. This is about how the disciples respond to the child. how you and I would treat a child in our midst. Now, right here I got to thinking, and, and I don't think, I don't think Jesus is thinking about this child being yours. He's thinking about a child. But let me draw from my experience of having four kids and seven grandchildren. thinking back to watching one of my grandchildren when they were three years old. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got this chapter I need to read and I've got this little project that we can work on and he can help me. And instead, you know what happened? Every 30 seconds, he needs something. He needs to go to the bathroom. He needs to eat. He wants me to play with him. He has questions. Why is that like that? So rather than me doing my thing and thinking that he's going to help me do that, it's exactly the opposite. I'm doing his thing, and I'm serving him. That's what Jesus is talking about. I mean, what is, I mean, a child especially in that culture, and, and I mean, children don't have money. They're not going to, you know, associating with children doesn't boost your finances. They have no status. They have no power. They have no authority. You know, uh, the mark of greatness. Think, imagine you're you're in the you know Super Bowl winning locker room, and you're going to just talk to the greatest person. You're going to just kind of associate yourself with the MVP and stuff. And Jesus says, "Well, I'll tell you who the great one is. Is the person who's talking to that little." Child, over in the corner. It's so countercultural. I mean, what does it mean to receive a child in my name? I mean, it, it does not mean that the child is a fellow Christian, like a brother and sister in Christ. It means that you're receiving this child. In Jesus' name, for the name, for the fame, for the reputation, for the glory of Jesus. Because they're followers of Jesus, they welcome children into their laps. They are to welcome children into their laps in order to display and show what Jesus is like. Welcome them in my name, for my fame, for my glory. I Man then Jesus ups the ante, <laughs> raises the stakes by this step parallelism. <laughs> i tell you why I'm speechless, because it leaves you speechless. <laughs> explain it. I don't know how to explain it. It's glorious and it's mysterious. Because Jesus says, well, if you welcome a child in Jesus' name, you welcome him. And if you welcome him, you welcome the Father who sent Jesus. So in a real, spiritual, profound way, to receive, to welcome a child is to receive Jesus, and not only Jesus, but God the Father Himself, the greatest of all. That's why Jesus said, this is the rest of verse 48, for he who is least among you all, meaning the one who identifies with the child, is the one who is great. That's the one who's great. Disciples. Forget this greater, greater, greater than. Here's the one who's great. The one who is great is the one who humbles himself Lays aside his sense of entitlement to be served by others or use others for status or power and rather humbly serves even the least who can't give you anything in return. Mark 9.36 9.36 puts a sharp point on it. And Jesus said to the disciples If anyone would be first, greatest, he must be last of all and the servant of all, even little children. So that's point number one. Point number two. Jesus confronts the disciples' pride in their quest to be greater than others in authority. I see these as connected, they're side by side on purpose. John, the Apostle John, says to Jesus, presumably looking for Jesus' approval, he says, Master, this is verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. (laughs) I mean, just, I hope that resonates with you from last week. Remember what the, 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 the ruckus was about last week? The disciples were unable to do what? Cast out a demon. <laughs> and then in here, John is saying, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't have follow with us. Is <laughs> this petty jealousy? What is this? So, upon seeing this person casting out Jesus in casting out demons in Jesus' name, John and the other disciples try to stop that person because he does not follow with us. In other words, he's not one of the twelve. Perhaps he would be among the 70 that Jesus is going to send out in a couple of verses at the beginning of the next chapter. But we don't know that. But we do know that Jesus communicates no sense that this other person ministering in his name was a false disciple. There's no sense that, that. There's no sense that he's a charlatan perverting Jesus' name. All we know is this person is casting out, Jesus, casting out demons effectively in Jesus' name and that he's not one of the twelve. That's all we know. Nevertheless, John and the other disciples took upon themselves the authority and responsibility to forbid that from happening. And Jesus rebuked John for that. Verse 50, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now I'm seeing here the desire to control the ministry of this other person as another expression of, of the disciples proud pride think about it. the objection that John has isn't that the truth is not being proclaimed it's not falsehood that John is against it's not that the healing work is a fake it's not that a false gospel is being proclaimed no John's objection is that the teacher doesn't come from our inner circle so he ought to be stopped kind of a pride of party, uh, pride of our tribe. Of this, D.A. Carson writes, I just have to quote him because it was, I, I thought it was memorable. John's complaints sound like power-hungry moaning. <laughs> power-hungry moaning. More concerned that those who preach in him belong to the right party than that the mission itself be advanced. I'm gonna read another quote. This one's from C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters. I'm, I'm assuming most of you know the screwtape letters. Just to give you a little context. So Lewis writes this book, fictional book, and it's a collection of letters. Back and forth from a demon who is, who is seasoned, who is mentoring a student, a, 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 a young apprentice demon. So the mentoring wise demon, his name is Wormwood, and the apprentice's name is Screwtape. So the tricky thing about reading quotes from this book is everything's backwards, Right? So when so when Wormwood talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. He's going to talk about what the enemy wants to do. He's talking about what God wants to do in his people. So climb into this with me. So Wormwood writes to screw tape about the intentions of God in killing this kind of party pride and replacing it with godly humility. Excuse me, Wormwood writes, the enemy, that is God, the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in, in the fact that without being any more or less or otherwise glad as having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. Get it? The enemy wants him, in the end, to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. Get it? God wants us to be of a humble state of mind such that we could design the best cathedral in the world and know that it is and be glad that we did it without being all that concerned that it was us who did it. In fact, we will be just as glad if it the cathedral had been built excellently by someone else <laughs> i smell this teaching of jesus under undergirding the apostle paul's response when he heard that some people were preaching the gospel with impure motives and remember the apostle paul's response he writes in philippians 1:18 well whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in that i rejoice so those are the two points right. <laughs> shifting to the conclusion it's a it's a funky conclusion <laughs> Uh, it's got three parts to it. First point, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get it. This is a hard teaching for the disciples, and it's a hard teaching for us to hear. I mean, later on, the mother of James and John even got involved. This is Matthew 20, 20. When she asked Jesus to reserve the chief seats in the kingdom, the seat of his right and that is left for her sons. Reminds me, we used to, we used to mock, tease our uh, son Andrew at the dinner table. He played baseball at uh, one of the colleges. And, and uh, so, you know, the brothers, the, the, the family dynamic would be teasing him like, he, oh, you didn't play last Friday. You know, maybe, maybe we should have mom call And tell your coach, hey, put Andrew in. He's a great pitcher. He's the greatest pitcher you got. What are you not pitching him for? Matthew 20, 20. John and James' mom does that with Jesus. She calls it the coach. (laughs) Comes up again in Luke 22. In the final hours of the crucifixion, the disciples are talking about who's the greatest again. You can infer Jesus is on the same topic in John 13 when he takes up a towel and puts it around his waist. And he washes the feet of his disciples. He says, I'm doing this, you do this to one another. The disciples did not comprehend Jesus' call to exchange the question, Who is the greatest? to actually being great, being like Jesus. This is a hard lesson for us to hear. I mean, clearly it goes against our fallen nature. I mean, it goes against all the winds of our culture. I mean, almost literally everyone apart from the gospel upholds pride as a great value. I mean, it's all over. I mean, 50 years of teaching and counseling on self-esteem only made it worse. I mean, you see it in sports. It's, it's just everywhere. I mean, and in, in the, the, uh, I had a whole collection of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the man of the year, the person of the year, the most influential, the most innovative, the most beautiful, the most, 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 most. most I mean, part of our culture You know, do not think you are unaffected by pride. It's part of the depravity that we carry in us, part of our fallen nature that led to the, the fall of Adam. Two practical applications. This is the second part of my conclusion. Number one, confess that you're proud. We've been born with a, with a sinful pride in our nature. Confess it. Admit it. And that pride taints our desires, our actions, our thoughts. I mean, with certainty, I can say... I'm not sure who to start with. I am proud, and you are too. I could change it. You are proud, and I am too. God wants us to put that sinful pride to death. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a, a chapter on pride, a really good chapter on pride, and he closes the chapter with these words. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> That's how he ends the chapter. <laughs> Point one, application. Confess that you're proud. Repent and... Receive Christ's forgiveness. Point number two, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Turn from your pride in your faith. Repent of it. Receive his forgiveness and follow Jesus on the path of humility, self-denial, and serving others, especially those who cannot repay you, like children. It's the opposite of the path of pride. That's a path of self-exaltation and selfishness. Jesus is explaining another aspect of what it means when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny your pride, humble yourself, and follow me. This is the reasoning of the kingdom of Christ. Mark ten forty-three. 43. Here Jesus says it this way and very clearly. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Two practical application points. Confess that you're proud. Receive God's forgiveness. And follow Jesus on the path of the cross. Here's the third point of the conclusion, which is why this was funky. Um, It actually reminds me of the, I don't know if you ever saw those old Apple presentations when they're rolling out new products. At the very end, Steve Jobs would say, and there's one more thing. I said, there's one more thing here. I mean, I said the disciples didn't get it. They got it. They got it. They got it after Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit was poured out. and They wrote about it and they lived what Jesus is talking about here. I'll give you the samples here. Let me just pick on Peter, John, and James and then throw in the Apostle Paul. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. John would write. This is John 2:15 and 16 and 17. For all that excuse me, 1 John 2:15 through 17. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father but is from the world. James got it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. And Paul, although he is the apostle abnormally born, not one of the 12, but uh, called to be an apostle on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. We we we, uh, we read from this already in this service. And do you see the connection? You see the connection between what Jesus teaches in our text and Philippians two. Because Philippians two celebrates the greatness of Christ. I'm gonna read it in just a second. But it also celebrates The mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, the humble mind of Christ, the giving his life as a ransom for many mind of Christ, the serving mind of Christ. Let me just read. I won't read the whole chunk, but let me just read Philippians 2 from verse 3. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Get the connection. Jesus is the greatest. All who are great in the kingdom live Like him with his mind on the road of the cross. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word to us. And this is a hard cancer to root out of us, to battle. And oh, how I pray by the power of your spirit and the power of your word you would humble us, humble us before you. In every way, we would be humble before you, and thereby we would be humble before one another. And we would serve even the least of the least with the mind of Christ, as Jesus here is calling us and the disciples to do. I pray these things for the glory of your name, and in the in the grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.church or write us at seven two zero.